My name is Sutton Wirt. Uh, I serve here as uh, your pastor for community care, um, or as somebody said the other day, uh, your pastor who actually cares. Um, <laughs> so if you need some care, you can, uh, you can come see me. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Well, hey, two, two weeks ago, um, we did a survey focused on the spiritual growth and health of our church. Um, and by far, the area where we're struggling most is in sharing uh, the good news of Jesus with people who haven't heard it or who haven't received it yet. Um, it was this area that, that people seem to feel the least confident in, according to the survey. Um, a, another statistic there is that the number of people uh, that we have shared Jesus with over the past year is 0.44 people per person. Um, so that means that, that each of us have um, led someone to the Lord um, well, led less than half of a person to the Lord. <laughs> and that, uh, the number of people who answered that question on the survey was only 78% of the people who took the survey. Um, so that number is actually even lower. And so what we have is, is a little bit of a problem. Uh, we have a problem of sharing our faith. Um, and I believe that's for a number of reasons, but it's not from a lack of knowing that, that that's what we're called to. Um, also, according to that survey, almost 80% of us believe that the Great Commission, Jesus' command to, to go and to make disciples, um, applies to us. And so, what gives? Well, I think that there's, there's a number of reasons, like I said. Um, and this is, this is not a time of pointing fingers. This is, this is on all of us. Um, I, think, I think that we're afraid. I feel that in my own heart and life. Um, I think we feel like we're unprepared or ill-equipped, like we lack the proper knowledge or don't know how we're going to be able to answer someone's questions. Um, and so I think those are all true, and I, I feel all those things. Um, but as I look at my life and the lives of the people around me, I think another thing uh, that really stands out is that we're really afraid of offending people. Offense is kind of the big taboo of our culture today, and so we're just, we're just afraid that if we step out and say what we believe about humanity and about God and, and where we're headed and what's going on, then we're going to offend people, and, and that's hard, um, and that's a very true reality. But, but here's the thing. The gospel, by nature, is kind of offensive. Um, Paul says as much in, in 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says the world does think it's nonsense, and it is kind of offensive. And so that's what we're going to look at and talk look at today and talk about today. Um, but for all of these these reasons that we struggle to share our faith, um, what we want to do over the next few weeks is give an overview of one of the most comprehensive pictures of the gospel in the Bible, and that is Paul's letter to the, the church at Rome, the book of Romans. Um, and what we want to do is just to gaze at the beauty of the gospel, the story that God is telling. Uh, we want to just soak in it and marinate in it and, and just let it transform us so that we might be filled with courage, not just to believe it, but to share it, to proclaim it to other people. So that's what we're going to do. Um, we are going to be in the, in the book of Romans today, uh, starting in chapter 1. I'm going to kind of survey the chapter, uh, but we're really going to focus in just on two verses, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Um, if you want to turn there, this is on page um, 1112, 1112 of your, your Bibles that are there in the pews, uh, or chairs, not pews. 
Um, but that's what we're going to be. So in these verses, um, Paul offers what is kind of his, his thesis statement. Um, in the verses preceding, he gives his characteristic greetings and um, thanksgivings. He's, he's saying, I'm really excited to come visit you people at the church in Rome. I've never been there before, but I'm excited to meet you. Um, and then he gives his thesis statement for the rest of the book, which is going to explain his message, the gospel. And he says this in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we want to just humble ourselves to receive it, to let it have its effect on us. Um, Lord, as we look at the gospel message, as we look at uh, the challenges that it, it presents to us, Lord, I pray that we would just be, um, that we would be bold in speaking it, that we'd be unashamed in, uh, in declaring who you are and what you've done, even if that's hard for us to hear and hard for others to hear. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, that in the gospel your love is revealed, that we've gotten to sing about that this morning already. So, uh, Lord, just speak to us now. Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would teach us uh, what only you can. Um, so we, we give you this time, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, well, let's, let's start with all getting on the same page. Let's start with this question. Um, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I think for a lot of us, the word gospel kind of conjures up images of like gospel music and like robes and choirs and clapping or maybe something like the Gaither vocal music band. Um, but that is, is not what the word means. Um, and if we're going to follow Jesus, then, then the word gospel has to be at the center of who we are and what we do. It's absolutely crucial for, for following Jesus. So can anyone tell me what the word gospel means? Good news. Yeah, you guys are on it. That's great. The gospel means good news. And that's significant because it tells us a little more about this very important word. If gospel means good news, then the gospel is not some formula. Um, it's not 10 steps to your best life now. It's not as simple as walking the aisle and praying a prayer. Um, but if the gospel is good news, then that means that the gospel is a story. The gospel is a story of something that happened in history, that actually happened, that changes things. It's news. It, it affects things. It affects you and it affects me. And it's a story that you and I are invited into as well. It's a story that, that happened in history, but that is ongoing. The gospel is a story. Well, what else can we see here about the gospel? Well, by the time we get to verse 16 in this chapter that we just read, Paul has already used the word gospel three times. And the first time, he says it's the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Not just any good news, but God's good news. And he gives us a little more detail in verses 1 through 3. Um, he says that it's the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. And so here we see that the good news is the good news that was promised beforehand. Uh, Paul means before Christ in the Holy Scriptures. That means the, the Old Testament, that whole first big chunk of the Bible. 
Um, He's saying everything in history, from the very beginning of the creation of the world all the way up to the time of Jesus, all of that was, was looking forward to this fullness of good news that was going to be revealed through Jesus, the good news concerning the Son of God, Jesus, who he was and what he did. So, gospel means good news, and specifically, the good news of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, here in these verses, um, we're going to see that even though the gospel is very good news, there are some reasons in here that it could be offensive. Um, and so I want to I draw these things out here. In verses 16 and 17, Paul gives two reasons that he's unashamed of this message. <clears throat> the first one, he says, For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So Paul says that in this message is God's very power to save anyone and everyone who simply believes. And that's awesome. That's great news. But here, too, is also some reason for offense. You see, inherent within the gospel message is the idea that you and I need saving. And that's not really a message that we like to hear. Have you noticed how, how our culture is constantly pushing back against that message that you and I need saving? You don't need help. You just need self-confidence. You don't need saving. You just need to realize that you're already enough. Our culture celebrates that message in a thousand different ways. And that's because um, I believe the, the dominant religion of America is, is not Christianity. It's not any of the, the popular world religions. But the dominant religion of Christianity is really this thing called secular humanism. And what that is is a belief that humans can achieve moral uh, rightness and can be content and happy and peaceful within themselves apart from any outside help, apart from the help of God. And that message is everywhere. We see it in our songs. We see it in our books. We see it in our movies. Have you guys watched Frozen 2? I like Frozen. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch Frozen. Um, our girls enjoy it. But the message of Frozen 2 is, is the opposite of the gospel. Um, it's a message that says you are the one that you've been looking for your whole life. You're enough, and you have everything you need inside yourself to do whatever it is you want to do. And so then for us to come in as Christians with this message of, actually, you can't save yourself, and you do need outside help, that's kind of offensive if that's what our culture is believing. Our pride bucks at the idea of needing a Savior. That's hard for us to accept. But Paul says that that, that message, the gospel, is God's very power to save. And he's not ashamed of that. So then he gives us another reason that he's unashamed of this message. Second reason in verse 17. He says, For in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here, Paul says that that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what, what does that mean? Well, righteousness is a judicial term that means justified or approved. And so the word means both the fact that God is 
justified and approved in everything that he does, but also that he alone has the power to justify and approve us. So the gospel reveals not only God's good and right character, but it also reveals God's goodness as a gift that he gives us, a gift that we receive by faith. A gift, um, the gospel reveals that, that we can be in right standing with God, but that it's something that we have to humble ourselves to receive, not something that we can earn by our own goodness. And even though I think that's great news, that too is something that could be offensive to us. What we're claiming to believe is a message that, that says not only are we need in need of saving, in need of outside help, but also that we don't really deserve that help in the first place. The gospel says that we can't be in right standing with God through our own moral effort or our own internal goodness, but that we need him to give us his righteousness and that we have to humble ourselves to receive it. And so again, the gospel strikes at our pride. It's offensive. The gospel strikes at both our identity and our ability. And that's hard for us. That's a hard message. And so no wonder, no wonder it's hard for us to share it. Well, that's Paul's thesis statement. Um, That's how he he kicks off uh, this big story he's about to tell of the gospel. And so uh, as we we go through the rest of this book, Paul's going to unpack both what the gospel is, how it works, how it transforms people from the inside out, how it sets us free to live the life that God has called us to live. Um, But today, we're just going to kind of dip our toes in that pool um, and just look at just the very first thing that Paul starts with as he begins to share this message. So let's read the next verse, verse 18. Immediately after Paul introduces this concept of good news, he delivers some bad news. He's just said, The righteousness of God is revealed, and now he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now there's a phrase we don't hear much, the wrath of God. Pretty sure you won't see that cross-stitched on a pillow or uh, (laughs) on the side of a coffee mug. You probably won't see this verse in a cute little Instagram caption. This verse is kind of jarring. I mean, I thought we were talking about good news here, Paul. Why are you talking about the wrath of God? Well, here's the reason I believe that Paul gives the bad news first. The good news of Jesus is not good news if you think that you're doing just fine without it. Let me say that again. The good news of Jesus isn't good news if you think that you're doing just fine without it. In other words, we've got to understand what the bad news is before we can understand the good news. The good news that all your debts are paid is only good news if you have unpaid debts. The good news that a loved one has been set free from prison is only good news if you had a loved one who was in prison. The good news that a brother or a sister who Uh, are are free from addiction is only good news if they were already addicted. And the good news that God has provided a way for you and me to be saved and to be made right with him is only good news if, if we weren't right with him and were, in fact, under his wrath. Now, when we say wrath, I think what we hear is, um, 
think we hear uncontrollable rage or just have this image of somebody like Hulk smashing the world. Um, but that is, is not what the word means biblically. Biblically, the word is not something accidental or uncontrollable um, or uncontained. But biblically, God's wrath is his settled anger rising up from an ongoing fixed opposition. And here in the first part of Romans, uh, God's wrath takes two forms. Uh, the first is three times in this passage, in the rest of chapter 1, it says that, that God gave them up. And his wrath takes the form of just turning people over to their sin and saying, okay, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. I'm going to let you run after sin and experience the pain and death that it brings. And then the second way that God's wrath shows up is in chapter 2, where it says that, that it's, it's being stored up for a day of judgment that is to come. So it's present and it's future. Um, and this is hard for us to hear, isn't it? It's hard to talk about. But friends, this is the bad news that we have to understand if the good news is going to mean anything at all. That you and I are born into rebellion against God. That, when, that, that, that God didn't make the world in brokenness, that he made us in, in beauty and perfection, in right relationship with him and with each other, but starting with the very first people, the first man and the first woman, they chose to go their own way, to do their own thing, to, not, to, to ignore God's path to the good life. And in doing that, they plunged both themselves and us into death and sin and brokenness, setting us up in opposition to God rather than with him. And the story of the Bible is the story of God over and over, loving people who resist him, coming after people who are running away from him, pursuing and wooing a bride who keeps worshiping everything else but the one they were made to worship. And that's... Um, that's exactly what the rest of Romans 1 paints in, in vivid detail. Um, it says that our rebellion against, in our rebellion against God, we do primarily two things. First, we worship created things rather than the creator. And second, we suppress the truth. So first, we worship created things rather than the creator. Another word for this is idolatry. Um, that, that rather than finding life and joy and worshiping the one that we were made to worship, we worship anything and everything but him. We worship food, and we worship drink, and we worship money, and we worship sex, and we worship people, and we worship our sports teams, and we worship our kids' sports teams, and we worship our comfort, and we worship our cars, and we worship our homes, and our phones, and, and anything and everything that we can get our hands on, and we like it. And we like it. And because of that, we've placed ourselves under God's wrath, his just and right condemnation of sin. But here's the problem. Instead of seeing that as, a, as an issue, we basically think that people are, are basically good. Um, that it's not a big deal. That God's gracious and he'll forgive me. Um, that I'm basically a good person. And that leads us to the second thing that we do in our rebellion. 
We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. So part of our problem is that somewhere in our, our broken hearts, we know that all of our idolatry is wrong. Uh, we know that we're accountable to God. We know that we've done things that cause us guilt and, and shame, uh, things we're embarrassed about, but we don't want to believe it. We don't want to admit it. And so we suppress the truth. We do everything that we can to justify ourselves. We look around and we say, oh, well, I'm not as bad as old so-and-so. Surely I haven't done the things they've done. And we do some good deeds to feel better about ourselves, all the while sinking further and further into our rebellion against God. And finally, we even go so far as to encourage other people in their rebellion against God. Paul says at the end of this chapter, Romans 1.32, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's a pretty bleak picture. It's a pretty rough place to be. But I think what Paul is saying is that the first thing that you need to get right about the good news is that there's bad news. The good news isn't really good unless we look at the bad news, as uncomfortable as that is, when we see the, the pain of, of the things that we've done and the brokenness of the world, then, then the light of the good news really begins to shine. Now, when we hear things like this, I think, like I've said, it's hard. We don't like it. Um, we may think, man, if God is wrathful, um, I don't want to know him. That's not somebody I want to follow. Uh, I'd prefer a God that, that isn't like that, that's more palatable. Um, but I do want to make clear that anything less than a God of wrath is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God that Jesus is. It's not the God that Jesus came to reveal. And I think that if we're honest... We actually don't want a God who isn't wrathful. Follow me. Follow me here. Think about it this way. If you have a child and you send that child to school and then you find out that every day at school, at recess, a bunch of other children are ganging up on your child and bullying them and calling them names and, and hurting them, what sort of emotion are you going to feel as a parent? Wrath. That's probably a pretty good descriptor. And if you didn't feel that, if you're just like, it's fine, I don't care, let them, let them do what they're going to do, you would not be a good parent. And so in that scenario, your wrath would be an indication of the depth of your love. And it's the same with God. His wrath is an indication of his goodness. It's a picture of, of how deeply he loves the world that he made. It's a picture of how much he hates the sin and the sorrow and the brokenness that, that's affected all of us. And how much he wants to, to deal with it and be done with it. But here's where it gets a little sticky. We want God to be angry about the evil in the world and do something about it. We want him to end all of our our pain and our suffering and our brokenness, but we don't want him to end us. We want him to deal with the evil out there in the world, but we 
want him to overlook the evil in us. And so the first step in this gospel story, the first step in this journey, is to realize that the problem of the world isn't out there somewhere, but it's right here. It's right here. That each of us have rebelled against our maker and stand rightly under his judgment, not having the ability to fix ourselves or to save ourselves. That's sobering news. That's, hard, that's a hard thing to share. But though we are helpless, we are not hopeless, church. Because remember, the story really is good news. And the good news is that God has the power to save everyone who simply believes. The good news is that you don't have to earn his favor, his acceptance. The good news is that you don't have to do a bunch of good stuff to undo all the bad stuff in your life. The good news is that Jesus and his body on the cross bore the wrath of God that you and I justly, rightly deserve. He bore it for you. He bore it for me. He endured the punishment that, that we deserved. And three days later, he rose from the dead, rising victorious over sin and death and the grave, so that all who come to him with simple faith might live in the freedom and the love and the joy and the forgiveness of God. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty that we're going to be celebrating and unpacking in the weeks to come. So if you, if you are here today and you're, you're not following Jesus, then I realize that this might have been hard to hear. It's hard for me to say. But the good news is that God has provided a way of salvation. The good news that is that um, despite standing under his judgment, he's provided a way of escape for you, that he really does love you, that he's done everything to make a way for you, to bring you to himself, that he's not treated us as our sins deserve, but that he keeps coming and offering love and grace and mercy far more than we deserve. And today he offers you nothing less than himself. And so the invitation would be to receive that, to receive that gift. But if you're here today and, and you believe this, uh, perhaps you're struggling to share it. And so let's just start off by admitting that it's hard. This is a hard message to share. It's really good news, but it only makes sense in the light of some pretty depressing news. This good news really, really is kind of offensive. I mean, it offended people so badly that they killed Jesus for it. Jesus came in telling the religious leaders, hey, you're trying really hard to be perfect, but you're, you're not making it, and you're never going to make it. You need me. And they hated him for it. They killed him for it. And so if the world hates, hated Jesus, then it's going to hate us too. And that's okay. That's okay. I know it's a hard thing. But let's just make sure that people are hating us because we're persistent and loving them with this good news. Not because we're obnoxious or unkind or post stupid stuff on Facebook or just get up on our own personal silly little soapboxes 
and never get around to actually sharing this good news. If we're going to be hated by the world, let's make sure it's for being in love with the gospel and all that God is for us in it. And finally, think about this. If all this is true, then the most loving thing that you or I could do for someone is to share this good news with them. So let's stop asking, what if I offend someone? It just is kind of offensive. Let's stop asking, what what if people don't like me? Jesus said they're going to hate you. And let's ask instead, what if this person remains under God's wrath when there's a way of escape available? Let's start asking, what if this person spends all their life trying to earn God's love when all they have to do is, is humbly receive it? Let's start asking, what if, what if this person missed out on the abundant life of joy and following Jesus here and missed out on eternal life later? Let's ask those questions instead. There's only one way to be made right with God. And it's through humbly, humbling ourselves to humbly receive the bad news so that we might joyfully receive the good news of Jesus, the gift of God's righteousness through faith. Let's ask the Lord to give us courage to share that message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sung about this message today. Lord, how you are the victorious king. You are our living hope that you came and lived in the brokenness of this world and you allowed our sin to crush you because of your love for us. Lord, thank you that you didn't compromise your justice, that you don't sweep sin under the rug, but that instead you yourself bore the punishment that our sins deserved so that we could walk totally free. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never received that incredible gift. I pray that they would. And Lord, for for those of us who are struggling to share this message, would you give us courage to just know and believe that even though it's hard up front, it's beautiful and it's powerful and it changes lives. And Lord, for anyone today who's, who's struggling with condemnation, who's given you their life but still feels like they have to earn your love or, or prove themselves or do all the right things, Lord, I pray against that spirit of legalism, that spirit of, of having to, to earn right standing with you. Lord, I pray that they would know today that they can't, but that you have given it to them. And all they have to do is receive it. Jesus, may we as your people walk in the glorious freedom of the children of God, knowing that you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us, that you've done everything necessary to set us free. Oh, Jesus, thank you. We worship you today. Lord, in the light of some bad news, I pray that your good news would shine all the clearer. We give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.